see all of you uh, on this uh, beautiful, sunny Sunday morning. Glad to hear and worship with us. We're only two weeks now until Easter, um, which is crazy. Shake your head a little bit, okay? We've got two weeks until Easter. You might have noticed on some seats around you and not on the credenza, we've got some swag now uh, in the house. So we have some Easter invites, and so um, the best way to... uh, Get someone to come to church and, and hopefully at church have an encounter with Christ is word of mouth, just to invite somebody. So all this is is really just trying to um, help you invite people, okay? Um, giving resources that will um, make it easier. Um, this isn't the, the church necessarily, you know, inviting people or I didn't make a commercial, okay? I know about a face for it, um, but uh, this is just like an assist, right, for you to, to maybe invite somebody. So you got a little postcard here. You can write a note on the back of it. Um, and then you got a little business card. It's a little easier to carry around with service information you can drop off. And then uh, already the favorite here is the magnet, all right? So uh, this has to, I guess it's going to be a, a staple for the future. We'll have a magnet for everything. I've got like 16 on my fridge. At home. <laughs> uh, so they're pretty cool. Um, let me encourage you again to think about who you might invite. Um, it's not unusual for the services before Easter to dwindle down, which is unfortunate because that's when right, we're really trying to, to get this congregation push each other and challenge each other right, to invite and reach out. Um, so um, please, though, uh, know right, Easter's coming, and, and this is really the season of the year where we're, we're able to really make the biggest impact in people's life um, by getting them to come. As we get closer to Easter, we'll have all our chairs set up. Um, we're, it's going to be, if I'm guessing, it's going to be pretty circus-like in here. Um, and so if we get here early, if we have volunteers, and get here and go to the middle of the rows and the front of the rows, that'd be great. And then I might just challenge you to think of um, three to five people, right, who you know and love and you know aren't a Christian or don't have a church home, and write them a little personalized note. Uh, these fit nicely into the little envelope, uh, and you can mail it to them. We've got lots of these, okay, more than out on the seats, more than on the credenza. I sat down and prayed and came up with those 55 people that I'm going to handwrite a note to, um, which sounded awesome in my mind, and I started writing. So I'm 15th way through, um, 40 to go. Uh, so uh, there you go. And then not to be outdone, right after Easter, we have our big uh, FCQ turns 40 celebration. And so... Um, this out there as well, just for you to see, we'll have some more um, things for you and to help you invite. This is a, a mailer, though. It's going to go to every residential household within a mile of our church. And so um, we're trying to uh, get the word out to the community and let them know that we're here uh, and we're not going anywhere. So uh, um, we're looking forward to ministry in the future. So um, know that these tools are available for you. Um, we've got lots of them. Let me know if you want some more. Uh, and then know that that's coming up as well. We've got all kinds of announcements coming up. We've got the Financial Peace University um, starting very quickly, so make sure you sign up for that. Um, if you'd like to be a part of that, um, then know that Easter's coming before you'll even know it, and as well as our celebration of our 40th anniversary. All right, so this morning we're in Amos chapter 5, as we continue in our sermon series through the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5. We'll read one of the most famous verses in Amos, I think. In my classroom, so at HBU I teach Christian theology and tradition, and 
one of the assignments I give every year, and it's my favorite assignment to give, and it's usually the student's favorite assignment, is I make them go to a worship service that's different than their own experience or upbringing. And a large part of the class is really just trying to expose them to different flavors and types of Christianity, right? For a lot of people, it's a shock that there are Christians out there that aren't white and that don't strum a guitar three times for songs and then hear a sermon and then go home. Um, the diversity of Christianity, right, shocks a lot of different people. The diversity of belief, the diversity of practice, the diversity of worship services. And so I said, okay, if you're a Protestant, go to a Catholic church. If you're a Catholic, go to Eastern Orthodox church. Right, just go somewhere different, have your worldview kind of expanded. Um, and it's very interesting to hear their reports when they get back um, from these churches. I've got a list of the out there ones, like if they really want an experience. Like just email me, and I'll get you to one, and you'll have an experience. Um, and uh, a lot of times, the, the end result of the project is like, I really appreciate my church now. Because um, that was weird. Uh, but every now and then, right, they're like, wow, I, I appreciate that. The architecture of that building, we meet in a gym, but I cannot appreciate why someone would spend that much money on that architecture, because it really did feel holy and brought me close to God. Or um, I can appreciate now, right? When on paper, the way they talk about communion or the Eucharist sounds crazy to me, but in real life, I can feel the sacredness, right, and, and how, how real it is to them. And so it kind of opens up their, their viewpoint. There's such a diversity um, in the world. Um, and Christian belief and Christian practice. Um, I love uh, going to different churches. So usually if I'm out of town, I'm not preaching on a Sunday, which I think has been like three or four times in the last eight years. Um, I'll go try, and my goal is always try to find the weirdest church, okay? I'm going to find the like, most out there, experienced church that there is. And I was in Miami once, and we went to a church. It was a predominantly African-American church uh, in a kind of lower-income area, maybe 200, 350 people there, and they started announcements, and 35 minutes later, they were about halfway through announcements, and then after about an hour, I think, we were done with the announcements. It's okay, so the, I guess everything else is like two minutes, right? Um, we got stuff to do today, uh, and then they started up, like a two-hour sermon, where I swear I'm not making this up. This is not like a repressed memory. He read every verse in the Bible that had the word that he was talking about. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm dying. Uh, and so it was a long service, to say the least. And then they did open mic night for prayer requests, which is great, right? I love prayer and prayer requests. But with 300 people, that can go on for a while, right? And just when I thought it was done, okay, we stand up to say a creed together. I'm like, okay. I like creeds. What are we doing here? Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. It was a creed they had written themselves. And it was a 20-minute long creed that 300 people recited out loud together on little black, white, white screen, little black backgrounds with white words with like 300 words on a slide. And it was eerily specific about the kind of choices that you could or could not make during the week. And I'm sitting there reciting this creed, looking at a couple of friends around me like, is this really happening? This has got Ashton Kutcher has to be, like, about to come through this door here. Like, I'm not lying to you. We're repeating sentences like this. I will not look at pornography this week on the computer or on my phone 
or on magazines, I will not smoke a cigarette this week. I will not do this or do that. And we're like, oh my gosh, maybe some good values, but do we really all need to recite this together with all the children around? And it's just going on and on and on. To the point where, again, we get to, like, very specific. I will do my best to support Republican politics during the week. Um, it's like, don't worry. Every aspect of your life they had thought of, and it was on that creed. So we were very clear about what we were supposed to do during the week. Although I think some people broke a few of those things um, on the creed. Um, but it was a much different worship service, right? Um, you would fire me. Uh, <laughs> I've written the creed. I'm just never going to give it to you all. Okay. <laughs> All right, filter all that. Um, I was in a Kenyan church once, and uh, it was a sl- in a slum, pretty bad slum in Kenya, and they, um, you know, I guess it's almost an American thing. We've got entertainment, right? So we've got things to go, football season or, you know, shopping or whatever. But if you're in a slum, you have really nowhere to go, right? And so it's maybe more natural that the services are longer. And their services are all day, and I mean, it's just very unusual for me, and um, they're all in Swahili, so I'm not understanding any of it. And it's interesting, right? I'm very much like appreciating what I'm learning and seeing and experiencing for the first four or five hours. Um, and then they ask me to get up and speak. And I'm like, oh, again, that's, you know, they're very generous. But there's no translator, and they don't speak English. And so I'm like saying a few words on the microphone in front of these 30 people. And I'm like trying to be like, okay, thanks. Have a good night. And they're like, no, 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 more, more, more. And I'm like, you don't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> it's me and the one white person that came with me. <laughs> but like the praise, right, was beyond most praise I've ever experienced. And so I appreciated that, right? And I was like, even in these situations, man, these people have so much joy. Um, that they can appreciate it. And so for me, one of the, the things that's always been cool about Christianity is the diversity. Um, all the kind of different types of worship and different types of, of Christianity there are. I went to a Disciples of Christ church once after a, a wedding in a little town in Texas uh, up near Dallas. And I walked in. It was a historic building. So it had like the historic little landmine man marker outside of it, not plant mine. <laughs> um, and I walked into about 150 person pew sanctuary and there were four people in there. And I was like, oh no, I'm in FC Cube in 2008. Uh, <laughs> and it was four people, including the pastor, um, who drove in every Sunday just to preach. And then there's just these three people. I'm assuming they're the mortgage paid off and there wasn't much I'd keep on the building. And um, you know, it was one of the weirdest services I've ever been at, uh, but also very beautiful, right? I mean, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm a disciple of Christ. We were kind of small, too, you know? We're still kind of small. Not this small, but we're, we're small. Um, and it was, you know, I had to leave early, so and I told the pastor and the whole congregation uh, before service. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have to leave, but I wanted to come and see and, you know, experience it. So I hope I don't offend anybody, but I'll leave, you know, in an hour or so. And so as a respectful, polite person, right, service is going, preacher's saying something, and I'm like, I get up, and I'm like trying to quietly leave, and he stops, and they all turn around, like, bye, Mike, have a good time. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, just go. <laughs> service, please. Um, you know, it's, it's weird to think about, too, sometimes a lot of people ask me why we do certain things in our service, right? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? Or, or someone will say, hey, do you remember 
when did that start? Because we didn't always do that. Like, what, what year was that? Or whose idea was that? When we finally, for a while, we didn't do scripture reading. You know, when, when was that? Is there a record book of when we started doing that and why we started doing that? Whose idea, you know, that came from? Um, even inside churches, right? Things switch and things change. And I think a really interesting question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning, that I think the text will force us to ask, is if Jesus were to come to our church, what would his opinion be of our worship service? Jesus visited, hopefully you'd get like a hello, the door, we get his information, okay, address heaven, phone number of prayer, um, he'd be laughing at my jokes like you are, uh, right, what, would it, what would his impression be? Would he be like, hey, okay, or would he be like, cease and desist, I don't want my name on that, right, if Jesus came to our worship service, what, what, would, the, what would his impression be? Um, Amos is, is going to hit the Israelites kind of as hard as he can hit them um, with an answer to a question kind of like that. And so as we, we see what Amos says about the ancient Israelites, I want us to also um, see how we can apply that to our church and to our own life. So we'll pick it up in Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. As if a man fled a lion and a bear met him, or went into his house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. It is not the day, it is not the day of the Lord darkness, and not light, gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feast, and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikkot, your king, and Cayune, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Canil and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who look far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. This is not a heart for vegetarianism, um, but he does give a woe here. Woe um, who sing idols, those who sing idols to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves music, uh, instruments of music. Woe to those who drink wine in bowls. Um, their four glasses, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself. You remember this is an uh-oh phrase, right? Um, God swears, but when he swears by himself, that's like a, uh, what just happened? That's an irrevocable promise. I swear on who I am, this is happening. And he says this, I abhor your pride, I hate your strongholds, I'll deliver the city up and everything that's in it. 
And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. When one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence, you must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you, you have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, bitterness. You who rejoice in Lodavar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Canaan for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Now, um, like a lot in Amos, we're not going to be able to get into all of the nitty-gritty and geographical details and references here. Um, you see again, though, Amos is pronouncing judgment on the Israelites. Okay, Because of the ways they have disobeyed the Lord, judgment is coming upon them. Um, we know historically this is true. He does raise up an enemy, the Assyrians, who come and wipe out their kingdom. And I want to point out two things this morning from this text. There's a lot we could look at, but there's two primarily um, really powerful things that, that I want us to look at. The first is this phrase, the day of the Lord. So you see this here in verse 18, um, twice the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord. Um, and the destruction that's prophesied, okay, is, goes through, right, the rest of chapter 6 that's going to happen on the day of the Lord. Um, the day of the Lord um, is a concept for the Hebrews um, that has to do with their idea of history and their idea of salvation. So for a Hebrew person, imagine my arms are a timeline, okay? Um, history is this linear process. You start here, it's going this way, and they are, right now, they consider themselves in the present evil age. It's a bad age. Um, God's good creation has gone wrong. So over here there's sin, and there's hurt, and there's pain, and there's sickness, and there's death, there's abuse, and there's poverty, and there's war. There are all these miserable things. But they believed that that wasn't going to be the story of history for eternity. But one day, God was going to drastically intervene in history in a single cataclysmic event and change everything. He was going to, with like a big broom, sweep out every tiny molecule of evil from his world. And all that would be left would be goodness, life, peace, joy. And they called that the age to come. And so history for the Israelites is split up into two parts. This bad time and this time after God shows up and gets rid of all the bad stuff. And they called that moment the day of the Lord. Sometimes called the day of the Lord's visitation. The day that God comes back. Um, the day that God shows up and acts dramatically to defeat the enemies of his creation. Now, the problem for the Israelites is they had assumed that because they were God's people, that it was only the team Jersey that mattered when God shows up. Okay? So when the day of the Lord comes, he's going to destroy their enemies. And what Micah's trying them to try to get them to understand, not Micah, Amos is trying to get them to understand is the day of the Lord. You have it half right. It is a time when God's coming to judge and get rid of everything that's evil in his creation. He says, the problem is, though, you're part of what's evil and wrong in God's creation. If he were to come and do that, you would be swept away by the brush. 
He says, why do, you, why do you want this? You should be like begging this not to happen. Because if he were to show up right now, you're on the wrong team. It's not just team jerseys and names that matter. And we could, we could, I mean, we could work this out in a lot of ways, right? If you ever want to live in a world without all of the, the stuff that we live in, pain and sickness and death and sorrow and, and all the stuff, then you need, at some point, someone to come get rid of all of that evil stuff. But if you are part of that evilness, right, you get swept away. You're now on the wrong team in the day of the Lord. And so he's saying, look, you're hoping for this? Don't you understand? Because of all of your sin, the day of the Lord is going to mean destruction for you. When God comes to fix his creation, he's going to find that it's his own people that have helped make it horrible. Which is why all along he's been saying, you've got to repent. You've got to change your ways. Amos is actually the first person in history to, to make this theological move. And prophets after him follow him. Um, almost all the prophets will follow him in this. He's the first one to suggest to Israelites that this idea of the day of the Lord might not be as good as they thought it was. Um, that it wasn't simply going to be a nepotism, team favor type thing. That God was going to show up and be like, oh yeah, those are my boys. Y'all, y'all are out of here. But that he was actually going to show up and say, good versus evil. And he was going to get rid of all that plagued his beautiful creation. So that those who would remain would be able to live in this eternal, awesome world that he had promised creation and his people. As Christians, we believe um, in the New Testament describes, so Peter, his, his, the first Christian sermon in Acts, Peter describes to a crowd what's happening to the earliest Christians by referring to a text in Joel, Joel chapter 2, which is about the day of the Lord. So for Christians, they thought Jesus, uh, his ministry and his life and his death, his resurrection, and especially his ascension, was the day of the Lord. So what does it look like when God dramatically intervenes into creation? It looks like a, a Jewish carpenter riding into Jerusalem. In, in a couple weeks we'll be looking at that. It looks like a young Jewish man getting nailed to a cross. This is the triumphal entry. And Christians also refer to Jesus' second coming as the day of the Lord. So Christians make a, a very unique, again, theological move. Instead of the Jewish idea where there's this one line... Right? They look closer and see that there's actually two parts to it. Um, Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And at the end of Jesus' second coming, it will be completely done. All evil will be rid of the world. In Revelation 21 tells us there will be no pain, there will be no tears, there will be no sorrow, there will be no death. But the Israelites uh, have deceived themselves into thinking that um, just because of uh, their name and their brand um, that they have Security. They're, they're overconfident. They've placed their security in something that should not be placed in. Um, and then, then, if you look at the next passage, this I think is one of the most haunting passages in the scriptures, definitely in Amos. Watch how he describes their worship. Look at the, look at the, the verbs God uses. I hate. I despise. I don't even like a little. That's the, that's the impression of I take no delight. Like there's nothing about this that even slightly makes me happy. 
I take no delight. I won't accept. I won't look. Take it away from me. These are intense words for God to say about his people's time of worship. Even more ironic would be the fact that these are all things he's commanded these people to do. You can maybe sympathize for them when he's like, I hate your feasts. And like, you told us to do these feasts and I despise your offerings. We're doing this. You told us to do the offerings. And, um, right? These are all commanded in the Old Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all these offerings and, and sacrifices and the Psalms say, sing praises to the Lord. And now God's coming and saying, I hate all of it. Um, stop doing it. Um, what Amos is hitting on here is that what the Israelites have done and what we, I think, so often are tempted to do still today is to separate out worship from discipleship or worship from ethics, from behavior, from lifestyle. Um, and in fact, if, if, if you did like an academic study of this historically, it's actually happened, right, in, in universities. We've taken ethics out of fields and made it its own field. Um, so it used to be, right, in philosophy, you talk about philosophical ethics. Um, in science, medical ethics, right, um, in theology, right, theological ethics. Now, though, you have a whole little, like, building called ethics, right? You try to take it away from everything else. But ethics, the question of what's right or wrong, what should we be doing, what's moral, that very much has to do with how we treat people, right, who are about to die. How much money do we spend? What kind of care do we give them? That has to do, your theology, right, how you view God, very much has to do with how you're going to live, Ethics runs through all of this. But as a culture, and then as people, even back to the Israelites' times, we like to pretend that we can separate out our worship from our lifestyle, our behavior. And Amos gives what has to be one of the most stinging critiques of that. I mean, imagine God coming and saying this about our worship service, about a worship service you were attending or involved in. I hate your worship service. I despise it. There's nothing about that at all that makes me happy. I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to look at it. Shut up. You're making this noise. It's annoying me. Put the, put the guitars down. Close your mouths. And go home. I mean, this is how serious God is when his people decide to be religious and, and, and try to overcompensate with religious rituals or worship attendance or worship service and instead are not living the way they're supposed to live out in the world. Jesus, you know, this is a theme throughout the scriptures. Jesus will say, if you're going to the altar... <clears throat> Sacrifice, and, and on the way, you just happen to think of a relationship that's not reconciled. He says, "Stop, put it down, and go reconcile it." It's more important than you going through some ritualistic opportunity. Um, I really do think this again is the epidemic of, of churches: is we have decided or accidentally started to believe at some level that as long as we go through certain motions 
our actions aren't going to catch up to us. And it's almost cliche, right? Say actions speak louder than words. But I can definitely think of service I've been in where I feel like, yeah, maybe he would say that about that, right? Just stop singing. Go home. What are you doing here? I always get a sense, so this is Skinner's paraphrase, all right? This is, this is just like an imaginative interpretation on my part. But I get this sense here, if, if I were, like, the psychology of God that I get here, so you know I'm out on a limb, is that it's almost as if he's saying, like, you'd be better off if you weren't doing this. Like, you getting together to worship is worse for you than if you would have stayed home. Because you're bringing it to my attention. You'd have been better off leaving the animal at home. Now I have to think about, oh, this is cute. You're bringing me, you're bringing me an offering. You've been better off not singing. Now I have to hear this noise. It's annoying. You're, you're making me more upset. You're flaunting this in my face that you're supposed to be my people, and yet you're acting like this. And he says, I swear on myself, I will come down on you hard. And it doesn't get much more intense. And as someone who, you know, plans worship services and leads worship services and is a part of worship services, right? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intimidating passage. But this, this is the Christian call. I mean, I think this is, is really, in a sense, very basic, right? Um, there's, there's, no, there's no cheap Christianity. Um, and I really wish, I mean, maybe, maybe you would actually be doing someone a favor if you told them, look, if you're not going to take it seriously, stay home. You might be making him more upset by coming and singing. I'm not sure I would ever say that to somebody, right? I'm a much nicer person than that. But from this text, it would seem to be if you have no desire at all to live like the kind of person that God wants you to live like, buy a boat and go sail on Sundays and do something. I think, you know, if we ask Jesus... How's my church service? How's worship? I think his answer wouldn't have anything to do with the preaching, which is excellent. <laughs> the worship, mediocre. <laughs> Chris actually writes my sermons. <laughs> I think his, his criteria would be what kind of people were there? How was your worship service? Let me think back to Monday through Friday. That's what, that's what your worship service was like. And so I, I feel like I'm feeling kind of angry this morning. Right? It's not about perfection. No one's expecting that. Right? But it's about this genuine attempt. Right? It's about not playing games with God. Um, it uses the line metaphor again. Right? And kind of an, a horrifying, ironic picture. Right? The day of the Lord is going to be like a guy who's running from a lion. Oh my gosh, I got away from a lion. And he finally gets away from a lion and a bear eats him. 
right? It's like, that's what when God comes back, that's what it's going to be like. Or you're going to run from the line and finally slam the door shut in your house and oh, relax on the wall and you get bit by a snake and die. He's like, you, 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 the moment you think you're secure, you're going to get bit. You're going to realize you had placed your security in all the wrong things. You place it in, in, in attendance and activity and, and all of these things. And when all the time you should have been placing it in, what did you say, verse 24? Justice and righteousness. Let justice flow down, roll down like waters. Let righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Not like a trickle that comes and goes. Not like a, a, a plumbing line that has to be turned on and turned off. Like a waterfall, like a dam unleashed that comes out. And all that you are is this like star bursting forth of energy of justice and righteousness around you. You're loving everyone around you. You're giving mercy and grace. You're looking for those without a voice and giving them a voice. You're looking for those who don't know the Lord and bringing them close to the Lord. These words are made famous in Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech. I have a dream one day. Justice will roll. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So, um, I say we make today a good worship service. It's maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's by the Spirit's help. Be just people. Be right people. Which pray thing. Father, we love you. We thank you for all the gifts that you have given us. Even texts that are hard um, to swallow sometimes and, 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 and make us have a lot of questions and think things through. Um, I pray that even when you challenge us, Father, we would hear that challenge coming from a loving heart, from one who um, doesn't challenge us to watch us fail, but challenge us um, after he himself has taken on the challenge for us and welcomed us in with his loving arms and sends his spirit to allow us to run, up, run after that challenge and, and really fail, get back up and keep running after that challenge, Father. Um, I pray that um, you would allow our church uh, to be a church where our music and worship is a pleasant sound to your ears and, and where our offerings to you are accepted with joy um, and where we are the people uh, who seek justice and righteousness. Um, Father, don't, don't, please don't allow us to place our security anywhere else. We'll be overconfident. We'll be confused. We want to know you. We want to love you. And we want to follow you faithfully. And that's in the name of your son we pray these things. Amen.